0: opportunities to serve. There's a place for you. I'm glad you tuned in.
1: Good morning. Please listen with me for the word of God as it comes to us from the Old Testament and the New from Psalm 116. I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my supplications because he has inclined his ear to me, therefore I will call on him as long as I live. The snares of death encompassed me, the pangs of Sheol laid hold on me. I suffered distress and anguish, and I called on the name of the Lord. O Lord, I pray, save my life. What shall I return to the Lord for all his bounty to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. For precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his faithful ones. O Lord, I am your servant. I am your servant, the child of your serving girl. And you have loosed my bonds. I will offer to you a thanksgiving sacrifice and call on the name of the Lord. And from the Gospel of Luke, the last chapter of the Gospel of Luke, we hear the traditional Easter story of the road to Emmaus. Now, on that same day, the same day that Jesus rose from the dead, two of the disciples were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and talking with each other about all the things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing Jesus himself, came near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what are you discussing with each other while you walk along? And they stood still and looking sad. Then one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answered him, are you the only stranger in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have taken place in these days? And Jesus asked, what things? And they replied, the things about Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was to be the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides that, it's now the third day since these things took place and some women of our group astounded us they were at the tomb early this morning and when they did not find his body there they came back and told him that they told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive now some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said but we did not see him then he said to them oh how foolish you are And how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have declared. Was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them the things about himself in the scriptures. And as they came near the village to which they were going, he walked ahead as if he were going on. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us. For it is now almost evening, and the day is nearly over. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at table with them, he took bread, blessed, and broke it, and gave it to them. And then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he was talking to us on the road, while he was opening the scriptures to us? And that very same hour then, they got up, and they returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven, and their companions gathered together, and they were saying, the Lord has risen, and he has appeared to Simon. And they told them what had happened on the road, and how he had been made known to them in the breaking of bread. May God add his blessing to this reading from his holy word. Hey! Let's take a walk together. That was my pitch yesterday when I was at Meadowbrook Park for Earth Day for Everyone celebration. That was my pitch. Taking a walk, I would say, helps in nature, helps us heal. It's not only good for our bodies to get the exercise, but it's also good for our minds to help us focus. And it's good for our spirits to relieve anxiety. You know... When a plan falls apart, or the day hits a bump, or when a whole week just hammers you like a two-penny nail, there's nothing like a good walk. It's time to hit the trail. Cleopas and Simon, from our story this morning from Luke, were on a hike precisely because their lives had fallen apart. They had been shaken to the core. Because their whole lives had unfolded under a system run by people who clearly did not care about them in any way, cared only that they paid their taxes and worked their jobs, the Roman Empire. But these two, Cleopas and Simon, had met someone different. Somewhere in their life, they had run into Jesus of Nazareth, and he had shown them a way of living where the poor mattered where outcasts could be embraced and where enemies could be forgiven. They had seen him heal people, who seemed incredibly sick, and feed an entire crowd of hungry folks, and wow, (laughs) meeting him had changed them, had changed their lives. They had begun to live differently, with their heads held high and their eyes wide open to the world, to the possibilities of the community that followed this Jesus of Nazareth character. And they found a new faith in the future through knowing him. But on the week of this story, where we meet them, that faith had fallen apart. Their new way of living had ended in the most brutal way possible. Boom. Just gone. Jesus' life, the community Jesus had gathered, their hope for a different future, all of it gone. And it was time for a hike. Back to Emmaus, they decided to go. Have you ever hit the road like Cleopas and Simon? feeling bereft, feeling confused, feeling beat up or in absolute despair? If so, you know that in this story, they are barely managing to put one foot in front of the other as they walk along, talking about this terrible thing that has happened. And meeting along that road, a stranger who doesn't seem to know anything about it. Don't you know what happened, they said? We had a champion. It looked like things were turning around for us. We we had someone on our side, and then there was treachery and betrayal, and they killed him. They bled him to death right in front of us. They said, and we had hoped. We had hoped. I don't know how many of y'all are also former English majors and grammar nerds like I am, but we had hoped has got to be the saddest, most hopeless verb tense in all of any language. It's the present imperfect It means that something had happened in the past, repeatedly, predictably, reliably, you could count on it, but now it doesn't happen anymore. The present imperfect, it's not just grammar. The present imperfect for many people is a state of being. And maybe I'm wrong. But I think that it's a state of being that lots of people have begun to inhabit in the last few years. I meet a lot of really great people who have come to see the present as imperfect, as irremediably broken. I meet people with a lot of hopelessness that has to do with the state of this beautiful world that we live in, this planet that we share. And I meet these people because I work for an environmental nonprofit. I got into this work because I love creation, and I love God's people, and I wanted to just, you know, stop climate change. Very small goal. (laughs) Uh, Guess what? It's been 10 years, I have not succeeded. I have not succeeded. The latest scientific reports show that the planet's warming gases are thicker than ever. When I started, I remember I went to a program and and there were parts per million of 383 parts of carbon per million parts of atmosphere. I thought, oh, that's bad. We got to get that down. Well, now it's 408, so it's moving in the wrong direction. The seas are warming, currents are changing decades before scientists expected them to Surveys of wildlife show that populations of wildlife weren't those beautiful pictures from someone's uh, trip to Africa. Populations of wildlife globally have declined 70% in the last 50 years on our watch. And, you know, I love people even more than I love polar bears. And the worst news is that not the last 50 years, but in the next 50 years, if we don't change what we're doing, billions of human beings, babies and mamas and sisters and brothers and grandparents will be forced to move from the places that they have always called home for generations because those places are going to experience heat so severe that human bodies cannot survive there. I joined faith in place because people of faith caring for earth had hoped that when people understood the magnitude of this problem, they would pivot, that we would make changes. We had hoped that before forest fires became a season in the western United States, things would be getting better. We had hoped, right? But it's the imperfect present in which we live, and sometimes hope is in short supply. And it's precisely when hope is in short supply that people of faith need to remember and recite the story of the road to Emmaus, of the stranger who said to Cleopas and Simon, hey, you foolish chumps, how slow you are to catch on to what God is always, past, present, future, always, up to God is the God of Moses who led slaves out of Egypt after Pharaoh said no ten different ways God is the God of the prophets who had crazy messages about swords being turned into garden utensils and about about valleys of scattered skeletons who were put back together and stood up on their feet The stranger just talks and talks and talks until they got where they were going, and then the stranger came inside, joined them, and broke bread with them, and at that moment, finally, 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 they saw that the stranger was no stranger. That was Jesus. It was Jesus all along, and the hope that had died with him on the cross was rekindled within them like a burning fire. God doesn't quit on us. For God, there is no such thing as too late to do anything about it. I'm going to tell you another true story. This is a story of two scientists who met and married as struggling grad students, kind of like the folks over on the campus close to us. They were biologists, though, and they studied marine sponges at the University of San Diego. They'd have a hard time studying marine sponges at the University of Illinois. They got their degrees, and they got jobs, and the jobs that they got were in Butte, Montana, Then they moved there but they found it was really hard to feel at home. Not only was it far from the ocean, it had cold winds instead of warm breezes most of the year, but it was different in other ways, too. Butte was an old mining town, and whereas in San Diego they had been surrounded by people who loved the natural world and lived in it, in Butte the vibe was really completely different. It seemed like here the attitude was that earth was to be used, and that whatever was valuable about earth was valuable because it could be dug up and blasted out and scraped and hauled away. There was a lot about Butte that was really, really horrifying to this young couple, especially a place called the Berkeley Pit. The pit was what? remained after a copper mine carved into the side of a mountain had been exhausted and then closed. Rather than clean up the mess, the owners of the mine decided the easiest way to avoid liability of somebody falling down a mine shaft, for instance, was just to blow the top off the mountain. So they just blew it up. Soon, groundwater and rain and snowmelt created a 40-billion-gallon lake It's one of the largest lakes in North America, but it's not really a real lake. The acidity of the rock, the pyrite rock, that they had mined the copper out of, and the water and the sun, all combined to pull heavy metals out of the soil, out of the rocks around this new lake and into this water. It turned it into an environmental nightmare. When Alyssa and Richard, that's our young couple, when they first saw it, it took their breath away because the liquid in the lake was not blue like water. It was red and gray. It was very, very toxic. It was full of arsenic and cadmium and lead and poison of every kind, and everything it touched died. One winter storm... Um, a flock of snow geese, 342 white snow geese, sought shelter from the winds by landing in the Berkeley pit. And by morning, they were all dead. In the dark, they had sipped the water, and it had eaten them from the inside out. They were This was just bleak and horrible and tragic. And about at the same time, as sort of a footnote, Our scientist couple went to a conference, an academic conference, and while they were gone, the custodian unplugged their refrigerator that they had their marine sponge samples in, and they were all gone too. So they'd have to start their research over from scratch, and sponges didn't seem like such an important project to them anymore. They were lost. They didn't know what to do. They were like Cleopas and Simon after the crucifixion. They couldn't see a way forward. So. What are they going to do? A colleague at that time brought them a stick that had floated to the top of the Berkeley pit. It was covered with some kind of slime. He said, what is this stuff? And so the biologists pulled out their microscopes and tests and found out that, strangely enough, it was bio. The slime was alive. And they wondered then what could live in that toxic brew. So they started looking. What could live in the Berkeley pit? And they found other life forms living there, and they ID'd them, and then one day they were out harvesting at the pit, and they found this thing that they'd never seen before. It was black, it was really sticky, and not only was it alive, when they took it back to the lab, they found out it had very unusual properties as well. It had the ability to bind metal to bind the molecules and take them out of the water where they had been uh, in suspension and leave the water where they had been a little cleaner than it was before. In fact, not a little cleaner, a a lot cleaner. The scientists had already seen microbes that could do something like this, that could bind 2% or 4% of the metal molecules, but this one, this life form was voracious. It took 87%, 94%, 97% of the toxins were being gobbled up and neutralized by this new thing. What was it? Where did it come from? They wondered. It was like nothing they'd ever seen before. And they looked and looked, did their research, but they couldn't figure out what it was. Um, They performed more tests. They finally ended up sending out samples of this stuff to other labs across the country and saying, have you seen this? What is this? Do you have any idea? Can you help us? Nothing. Nothing. Months and months passed and they had no progress on their project. And then, a wildlife biology lab made a match, and they sent the results back. It said, this microbe is rare, but we have seen it before, and the only place the only place we know that it can be found is in the digestive tract of snow geese. It still blows my mind. The dying geese in the Berkeley pit had not been the end of the story, as sad and tragic as it was. Life, undeniable, crazy, resilient life made another story possible, a story of new possibilities and renewed hope and purpose. Very much like this story of the road to Emmaus, which turned Cleopas and Simon around. This year, when I read that story, and I knew I would be coming here today, I noticed something that I hadn't noticed before, that that when it dawned on them finally what was going on, that there was hope Cleopas and Simon decided to return to Jerusalem immediately, and they did not even wait till morning. How hard would that have been? They did not have flashlights back then, right? Although their hearts were burning, they had good news to share. The road forward suddenly didn't seem clear and easy, even any more than it seems clear and easy for us as we think about how we can move forward. This is the true of the path that we have to take to a sustainable, healthy future for our earth. We can't see very far ahead. We know what the destination is, a place where all God's creatures can have a healthy place to live and clean water and clean air and livable temperatures and healthy food. We know what the destination is, just like they knew Jerusalem was back there. And we know how to take steps in the right direction, but we don't see the whole path it's still kind of dark. The Environmental Stewardship Committee of this congregation has been actively moving us down the road in the right direction for over 20 years now. They've done wonderful things with reducing waste around your house of worship and, and energy consumption and creating habitat for pollinators and birds right in the heart of the city. They've they've made the neighborhood cleaner and more beautiful. They recycle things, they recycle styrofoam with your help, and then they go to Springfield and argue that we ought to just make the first step toward eliminating that pesky stuff anyway. I know you are so proud of them. I know I am so proud of them. But do they have, does anybody have a perfectly clear map guaranteed to get us where we need to be fast enough to save us. It's a road we haven't traveled before. And so on Earth Sunday, I want to remind people of faith, Easter people, that's us. We do not walk this road alone. We may not always see what God's great next thing is going to be, but we can be sure that Jesus will be walking with us. And in faithful company, we can keep moving forward in hope in love, and in faithfulness. In faithfulness to the one who brought our Savior out of the grave and who continues to bring life out of death and love out of pain. So on Earth Day, I want to encourage you. Let's take that walk. Let's take that walk together. Happy Earth Day, Easter people. Amen.
0: Thank you for joining this podcast of First Presbyterian Church Champaign. Visit us at our campus at the intersection of Church and State Streets in downtown Champaign. And for more information, visit us online at www.firstpres.church. Have a great week.